Welcome to Jammin' with Jason Mefford, a show where we discuss topics relevant to chief audit executives and professionals in audit, risk, and compliance. We discuss the technical and soft skills needed to navigate the minefields of organizations. You hear best practices and practical advice for helping you advance your career, and we'll even talk about music, mindfulness, and psychology, because we can. So sit back and relax while you listen to the number one podcast in the world for internal auditors, unscripted and unedited. Well, hey, welcome everybody. I'm Jason Mefford, and I am privileged to have Dan Clark on with me today. And uh, met Dan a little while ago, um, went back and actually read his book called Dare to be Different uh, that we'll talk a little bit about today. But um, really excited to have Dan on here because Dan is <laughs> is one of those guys, you know, you, you've got some gray hair, Dan, because you've been in the industry for a while. I've got no hair, you know, that's why I wear a hat all the time <laughs> and gray hair as well. Um, but, you know, just to kind of give give the listeners a little bit of background, I mean, you've had a... 30 plus year career, uh, you know, worked work for Citibank for many, many years. You've been a chief audit executive at, at a few different places now at a, at a regional bank up in the Northwest. And, um, you know, I, I, I love to, because when we, when we talked before, you referred to yourself as the goat of audit. So maybe to tell our listeners, what's the goat of audit mean? Well, that's, that's a new, new one for me. I just decided to be the greatest of all time because nobody has claimed that yet. Uh, so, you know, I've got some, I've got some skills. I, I'm not married to a supermodel. I don't eat avocado ice cream and I don't play football. But I figure somebody has to be the goat. It might as well be me. Well, and, and I love that term too. I think before when we talked, you were using the antichrist before, which I, th I think is great, and, and I think GOAT is great because greatest of all time, you know, it's like reference back to Muhammad Ali a little bit, but but yeah. I think also, you know, that be, be, because the acronym GOAT, you know, sometimes you may seem like a GOAT to people because you're saying things that other people aren't saying, and that's, that's one of the reasons why I, I wanted to talk again today because um, I think that's lacking. Uh, in internal audit. You know, it tends to be a very, well, we, we use the word systematic and disciplined, but I think often that ends up meaning boring and uh, right? Why, why do we even have, have internal audit in organizations? And I think we've got to kind of shake it up, talk about some of these elephants in the room and other things like that. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, and as far as, you know, your, your, your book, this dare to be different, which I, which I thought was interesting because the subtitle is an auditor's personal guide to excellence. Right. And so yep. maybe let's, let's start off uh, because I see this a lot, you know, when, when people are contacting me and they're saying, Hey, I want to have a career in internal audit, but honestly, most of the time they have no idea what the hell that means. Right. Or, or what they need to do. Uh, to, to really have a career in internal audit and to be different, right? And that it's, that it's okay to be different. I mean, you, in the book, you talk about personal branding and some of the stuff like that. Mm -hmm. so, so maybe just kind of give the listeners a little, a little flavor for, you know, around branding and actually, you know, having a career in audit. What, what are some of the things that you should be considering or trying to do? Sure. I think, I think it's an interesting career. And it's changed a lot over the past few years. I know when I was actually started my career in banking, I was in the business line and I didn't like auditors because I thought they were too myopic. They focused on the little stuff. They were nitpicky. It was like being married to my job. And I didn't want to be married to my job. My job was something to do to help other people do some stuff. When I got into audit, I got into it because someone convinced me that at Citigroup, they wanted to change what audit was perceived and what audit did. And the change was going from the traditional ticking and tying and testing and being detective to becoming more predictive in nature and understanding the, the risk associated with the business and talking to people who run businesses at their level about the risk that exists for them. And to do that, it's a complete different skill set than what the old auditors used to have. 
Yep. And there's nothing wrong with tradition. I mean, if you remember Fiddler on the Roof, and I really like this because when you look at Tevya, the star, his first daughter wants to marry a revolutionary, and that's against tradition. Yet he gives in, says, okay, do, go ahead. The second daughter wanted to marry someone who the matchmaker didn't pick. And he goes, that's well, tradition says you have to marry the matchmaker pick, but go ahead. Yep. And so tradition was broken a little bit. And by the end of the movie, tradition was still valuable, but it had been modified a bit to meet the modern age. And I think that's what's missing in audit. I think we focus and continue to focus on the tradition, the technical side of it. We miss the soft side and we don't help people become meaningful auditors. We just help them become auditors. Yeah. Well, and I, I think that's a great example. I mean, Fiddler on the Roof is a great movie, right? Um, it be, because it, it teaches so much about, about life, about, like you said, tradition. And the fact that as times change, right, we have to change. And, and so, again, this is where, you know, I've always found it interesting as, as a chief audit executive myself at a couple places, you know, being a chief risk officer and compliance officer mm -hmm. and, and, and having, you know, auditors who are supposed to understand risk. And it's like, guys, you are not changing with the times. You don't seem to understand contextual change and how sometimes that means tradition ends up changing. Yep. Right? And, yep. and so, yes, you know, in, in the Fiddler on the Roof example, you know, tradition is important in a lot of ways. Because it, it does provide us some stability and, and some, you know, systematic ways of doing things. But yeah. as the world changes, we have to change with it. I agree. And one of, one of the true examples, and this gets to my, my being anti-Christ anti of audit. If you think about the risk assessment methodology, when you really look at risk and you determine what exists and to what impact it exists, we now have risk assessments that people complete who actually don't really understand the business they're completing it on. And what they've done is they've taken a, a sample of something and said, okay, I'm going to apply this to my organization when probably half the risks that they're looking at don't even apply to their organization, but it's the form <laughs> over substance. Yep. And they fill it out, and then they do that. The other one that I will pick real quickly, which really is a pet peeve of mine, it's about controls. You have your risk, and you have your controls, and people now rate controls. They're either effective, somewhat effective, majority of the time they're effective, or they're ineffective. So there's five different ratings on how effective a control is. And I tell my staff, and, and they really get tired of me saying this, but I'll say it here too, a control either is effective or not there is no control that is somewhat effective. And for us to be able to rate a control as somewhat effective because the business has a, wants to feel good about a control that they didn't design well or implement well or doesn't work all the time, doesn't make sense to me, yet audit allows that to happen. And that's part of the tradition that needs to change. Controls either work or they don't work. If they're designed not to work, they're not a good control. It's just yeah. that simple. And yet auditors will continue to argue with me and other people that, no, you can have a partially effective control. And that's okay. I say, well, okay, well, then, you know, you buy the car that only has one brake on one wheel. It's partially effective. Four wheels. <laughs> yeah, it's partially effective. You might stop, right, if you only yeah, have exactly. one brake. Yeah, um, Yeah, no, and I, and I think it's funny because – uh, you, you know, again, when you step back, because I, I, I teach a lot of CIA review courses, and, and, and one of the things that's on there is critical thinking, okay? I mean, there, there's, there's, it's important as an auditor, and yet sometimes how, how illogical auditors can think, right? Because again, like you said, in, in a way of trying to placate management, we've created these four or five levels of how control and effective it or how, how effective a control is. Mm -hmm. But the reality is a control is binary, right? Yep. That's why we use attributes testing. It's binary. It works or it doesn't work. Now you can have some differences as far as, you know, if you go back to statistical sampling on, well, of course it's not going to work all the time, but as long as it's within your tolerable error, Mm -hmm. And it's considered to be effective, right? Right. 
Um, and, and so that's, it's interesting that, that people have gone down that route or that we're so low in the organization. What, what I mean by that, cause you were, you were talking about risk assessment and I, and I actually just had a conversation with another chief audit executive this last week. Mm-hmm. And we were talking about, cause his, his organization now is bringing in an enterprise risk management group to do mm-hmm. a strategic high level you know, risk assessment for the organization. And he's on the working team, which he should be. Um, but, but his question was, you know, I don't know that their risk assessment is really going to do what I need it to do. And so first I was like, well, just a minute, time out. What do, what, what do you mean? Right. And, and, and he's thinking, well, it's not detailed enough. It doesn't get down to the control level where I need to be for my testing. And I'm like, okay, just, just a minute, right? <laughs> Time yeah. out. Mm-hmm. We shouldn't be looking down at like the five foot level. We need to be starting up at the top at the 30,000 foot level and, and then kind of do this whole idea of, you know, an assurance plan, uh, you know, and using other people in the organization to say, look, if there's 10 top risks in your organization, in my opinion, your audit plan better only have things that relate to those top 10 things unless the audit committee is asking you to do something else, right? So start from the top, work your way down then into the different processes that affect that, into the different risks within the process, and then look at the controls that you would need to test. Because I think especially for something like risk management, people don't realize there are different levels and categories of risk within the organization. And tradition, right? Shows that auditors tend to play in that, you know, we have PRC schedules for goodness sakes, right? Process risk controls. That's what, that's where most auditors operate. But you know what? The C-level executives don't really give a crap about that. No, right. They don't. And, and, And so again, kind of from your experience, right? You came from an operational or business role into internal audit to try to change it. Right. So that you weren't so, myopic and some of those things like that. So maybe, maybe explain a little bit, cause I know, you know, city city group was kind of, you know, out ahead of most people. Heck there, you know, when you were doing this 20 years ago, they were ahead of where most people are today as well. Yeah. So what were some of the things that, that you did or were able to change to maybe make audit more relevant to the organization and provide more value? I think, I think the biggest thing is what one of the things that we had at City was a business risk review function that was separate from the audit function. And a business risk review function was a higher level look at how management managed the risk of their organizations. Whereas at that time, the audit function was your traditional audit function looking at financial risk, financial control or controls over financial uh, accounting and the lower level controls. So they were looking at the transactional level, if you will, and we were looking at the procedural level or the management level. Uh, And when you merged the two together, it really became a perspective exercise rather than a technical exercise. Because one of the really good things about auditors is they're very detailed and they document very, very well, typically. One of the really good things about business risk people is they don't do that. Uh, and so when you mix them together, all of a sudden the business risk people started to learn how to document what they saw, what they, what it meant to them and all of that stuff, which made them better. And what business brought to it was the perspective that, you know, this risk is a risk, but it's not that important in this instance. And this is the reason why. So as the perspective changed, then audit was able to provide or audit and risk reviews, what it was called was able to provide much better value to the organization and focus on things that really meant something rather than the things that typically were looked at by audit. I'll give you a real good example of how I have adapted that. When I went to GE Capital and worked at GE Capital, most people know you've got a home office and you've got global offices throughout. The risk assessment that was being done there was for the individual offices throughout the globe. What my question to the staff was, well, what home office does has an impact to those offices out there. And what those offices do have an impact to what home office does. Where do we capture that risk? 
It's a governance risk, a management risk, an oversight risk. Where do we capture that? And they hadn't captured it. Mm -hmm. And most people don't do that in, in large companies. They don't capture what the home office does because we're so mired into the lower level risk of the functions or the processes or the offices within the uh, geographic regions that we look at, or we'll miss them and focus on something else. So to be able to bring them all together, something I learned at City and GE that have helped me understand that there's a ton of risk out there, but when you really get down to financial services, there's only two things you need to worry about. One is money, <laughs> because if you don't have any, you're not gonna be in financial services. <coughs> And the other is you got to make sure that the regulators are happy with what you're doing. Those are the two risks associated with financial services. But each of those risks have a number of different processes or impact, state, impact areas or attributes that you could go down and have 750 individual risks for all of those. But we can't lose sight of the very simple fact you need to have money and controls around that and you need to comply with what the bosses tell you to comply with. And if you do those things, you're going to be fine. The rest of it probably is not that important. Yeah, well, and, and because, because I think, you know, from what you're saying there is what I've, what I've found is a lot of times the things we're focusing on are not really that important, mm -hmm. right, to, yeah. to, to, to the big scale of the organization. And, um, and I think, too, because what I like to do is, I'm kind of a weird guy. I mean, I, I read all kinds of stuff and, and I, and I try to make correlations between things outside of my space. So like looking at things outside of audit, outside of certain industries, even outside of business and how do those relate back and help us do what we need to do better. And, and one of the things that you, that you brought up there, a couple ones to maybe talk about is that perspective side of it, as well as uh, kind of this whole idea of the interrelationship within the organization. Because I think, again, a lot of times people don't, don't think about that. So, so maybe we'll start with the, the interrelation issue. Um, probably, I don't know, 15, 20 years ago in the IT side of the business, as the systems and processes became more complex and you have more applications plugging together, all of a sudden IT realized, you know what, we probably should create a position called an architect mm -hmm. that helps us to actually understand what's going on in our IT environment. Because the problem was this little change over here, way over on this side of the organization, all of a sudden impacted something that was way up over here. Yep. And nobody could figure out, hold it, how come that happened, right? And, and I think that kind of goes back to what you were talking about with you know, home office versus, you know, these local offices that mm -hmm. within the organization, there's lots of different things that are going on. And in, especially in a siloed organization, yes, when, when one group does something and the others don't really realize, or it can have a big impact on everybody else, unless you really kind of take off the, the hats that you normally wear and think about it um, for the, for the whole organization. Right. And so oh, this, this example just popped into my head from one of the companies that I was working with. There was, um, because, because different people in the organization have different perspectives too. Right. Mm -hmm. And they have different, um, incentives to do or not do certain things as well. And, and, and so this was an instance where it was a f food manufacturing. We, we, we used a lot of, um, oil soybean oil. Mm -hmm. and so we were probably the largest soybean oil purchaser in the country. Okay. And that meant that, you know, what, what we did, you know, moved the commodity markets. Mm -hmm. And, and one of the things that we needed in our, in our processes was natural gas to be able to run our factories. And so our operations people, this was when natural gas prices were going up significantly as same as um, fuel was. Okay. Uh -huh. And so we had budgeted a certain amount, and I think the number was $5 in MMBTU that we had budgeted. Our operations people had put in their budget for natural gas. Now, they were concerned that if it went over that, they'd be under budget, under budget right? Uh -huh. 
Uh-huh. And so they found a marketing firm that would give them a contract for 450. And so these operations managers wanted to enter into that because Allah, you know, wave the magic wand. I'm 50 cents ahead without doing anything. Right. Mm-hmm. So I look good. My bonus is going to be better. And so, you know, they, they, they bring this forward and we say, you know, that doesn't really make a lot of sense because of how the market's moving and all this kind of stuff for long term. It doesn't make a lot of sense to do that. We already have some of it hedged, but we don't want to hedge the rest of it. Well, they ended up going away and deciding, no, we're going to hedge it. They hedged hundred percent of it. Mm-hmm. Okay. And during the year, the price dropped, right? Mm-hmm. Which meant it was good for that group of managers because they looked good on their budget but yep. for the company, we lost millions of dollars, yep. right, by being locked into a higher contract than what we should have been locked into. And so if you're not, if you're not seeing those connections and those links between the different parts of your business and even the strategies that you're choosing to take, it's, it's really hard to understand what the real risks are. Agree. Right? Agree. Yeah. And, and so you, so you almost have to have, so how do you, how do you get more of that perspective? You know, because a lot of times, uh, you know, I think, I think when we were talking before you used the term that audit is often an island unto itself. (laughs) Okay. And I, I've seen that all the time too. So, you know, if we're an island unto ourselves and we're only looking at what we're doing, well, we're not going to see everything. Right. So how do we get out of, or get off that island? playing survivor and we got to get off the island or we're going to die. Right. <laughs> and we want to get off before we're kicked off. You know, yeah. that's a great, there's, that's a great question. I think there's two things that happen. One is your own personal experiences. It, those are great learning moments that if you can harness those, those really help. So the longer we stay in the business, the longer we have, the sooner we have gray hair or no hair, then that experience helps us really understand things that are going on. One of the benefits I had at City was it was a career unto itself. But I, I went through, I was in sales, I was in underwriting, I was in credit risk management, I was in operational risk management, I was in audit. I had a, a career of experiences that gave me a balance of what was going on in a financial conglomerate, basically. Mm-hmm. So that's one way, your own personal experiences. What I like to tell auditors who don't have the benefit of working for large companies or experience a lot of different things is to build a group of counselors that you can reach out to and call and say, hey, I've got this situation. How would you handle it? What did you see over here? Let me give you an example that I have in my book that really helped my team. We were going to go audit a, a bankruptcy unit in a mortgage company, and nobody in my audit staff had ever audited bankruptcy. And so they started reading about bankruptcy. They looked at work papers from other people in the, in the corporation that had worked on bankruptcy. And I, I looked at them and I said, there's got to be a better way. There's got to be something better that we can do to prepare ourselves to go look at something we've never looked at before. So I called up one of my friends. He happened to be running a mortgage company in the Midwest. I said, hey, Bob, this is my situation. Would you mind if my audit manager and I flew out and just maybe you guys could walk us through your bankruptcy process? He says, well, why don't you come out, spend two days with us, we'll go through it. We spent two days. We went through everything he could possibly show us about bankruptcy from the first phone call to all the MIS and the reports that they had to how they settled things, just the whole process. When we got through those two days, my audit manager and lead auditor knew a lot about bankruptcy. They then facilitated or added to that the, the knowledge, the book knowledge, if you will. Mm-hmm. We went down, we audited the mortgage company, and after the audit, the head of the mortgage company said, you know, this is the first time I've had someone come in who actually knows what they're <laughs> talking about. And I, of course, said, well, you know, I've got an experienced team, of course. <laughs> Pat uh, yourself on the back there, right? <laughs> absolutely. I mean, well, why am I going to divulge my, my secrets? But I learned from that that if I have a, a, a kind of a, a council or a board or an advisory group that I can reach out to personally mm-hmm. and they have lots of experience, I can rely on that experience to help me make my independent assessments and judgments to do the things I need to do. 
So there's two ways to get experience. One is to get it yourself. The other is to leverage those people who have it that you can trust and use that their experience and make it your own. Yeah. No, and I, I thought that was that was actually one of the one of the best suggestions in the book. Uh, you know, you, you, this little group of counselors, if you will, right? Because mm-hmm. and those can be people in the company. They can be again, in completely different industries or in other different areas. And this kind of ties back to the perspective we were talking about before, right? Is everything is relative in this world. Okay. The theory of relativity is true, right? And it depends on where you happen to be, uh, is kind of shapes the reality of what you're looking at. And somebody who is standing somewhere else is going to experience it or see it slightly different than we do. Why? Because they're relatively different. Okay. And this goes back to quantum, quantum physics, right? Again, weird, weirdo, but yeah, I I like (laughs) as well. And um, so without having those other people, right, that you can actually rely on and get different perspectives, how are we supposed to come to a good conclusion? Right. And so again, it's, it's the same thing, you know, when we talk about evidence and having sufficient evidence to be able to make a conclusion, well, what's upstairs in our, our individual brains isn't enough either, right? Probably the, the total of what's on our team, even though we've got smart people, right? The, the total brain power on our team is not enough for us to be able to, to do what we really need to do, right? And, and, and so I, I think that's, you know, if, if, if you don't have one of those groups, you need to find it, right, or start developing. Yeah. I agree. And the other thing, and there's a real simple reason that I did that, is because I'm not a very smart person. I can talk to someone about IT and say, yeah, you press this button. I, I still use the phone to make phone calls, okay? That's it. I don't do anything else. And I have people on my staff who can do all kinds of stuff. I don't know everything there is to know about my institution or my finan- or the financial world or risk and controls. I need to have people out there who know more than I do so that when I, when I go up against someone who knows a lot, I at least am a little better educated that I can understand what they're talking about. If I knew everything that I had to know, I would definitely be the GOAT, uh, <laughs> but I, I don't. And so I try to find people who know stuff that can help me get better at what I do to provide a better service for my clients. And I think that's what we should be doing. And auditors typically don't do that. Auditors typically believe they know the answers. And so they don't reach out to find someone to help educate them better, or they think they can get it in a book. And I'm all for education, all for certifications, but they're only as good as how you apply that knowledge to your work. And I'll tell you, I've got several examples of auditors who have five, six, seven certifications. They are book brilliant. They can't audit worth beans. And that really bothers me about the industry. And we continue to do that, including, and I'm going to go on a limb here, probably edited out, the IIA (laughs) focuses on certifications. It does not focus on educating auditors to be successful. And I find that egregious and I find it amazingly interesting that an institution supposed to help us be better only focuses on book learning and really doesn't focus on the real aspects of being an excellent auditor. Well, yeah. No, and it, it won't be edited out, man, because we, we have the same thought there. Is that, <laughs> um, you, you know, I, I think in, in a lot of the, again, traditional right? Training and certification methods. That's where as an industry, we're really stuck. Agreed. And, 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 you know, people think again, well, if I just learn more then I'm going to be able to do it. And and the fact is, no, you're not. Okay. No matter how smart you are. I mean, here's the reality that hopefully people have already learned, but you can't do everything by yourself. You will not be successful if you try to do everything by yourself because either you're going you're gonna to be a jerk to everybody who, who looks like they know more and doesn't want to work with anybody mm-hmm. or you're going to end up getting in over your head and just look like an idiot. Okay, yep. that, that happens, unfortunately, a lot of times with people who are very book smart, 
I mean, the example that, that, that you gave with the certifications, I had the name of, of a person that I worked with <laughs> pop into my head. Okay. And this was, this was, you know, decades ago when I was in public accounting, but it was the same uh -huh. thing. You know, this person was super smart. I mean, like scored number four in the country on the CPA exam. Mm. Some, some, I mean, so this person has a very high IQ, but when we would, we do, we'd do an engagement, right. Instead of actually looking at, and we were, it was one of the big firms, right? So we had like uh -huh. the, the, this, you know, Uber thought leaders, but sh th this person, I'm trying not to say he or she, <laughs> would go back to their college textbook to try to learn stuff. And I'm like, are you kidding me? I mean, that textbook is outdated to begin with, right? And, and, and felt like they had to do everything on their own. So we can't do everything on our own. We have yeah. to learn. And, and like your example with, you know, seeking out your friend to talk about bankruptcy, um, you know, before we jump into an area, we really need to understand it, right? So when you were sharing that story, it reminded me of one that I had where um, I made it all the way through high school, undergrad, and grad degrees, never taking chemistry. Okay. Oh, nice, nice. Yeah, yeah. I don't. I always took biology, and I loved physics. So I, I, I had a lot of physics classes. The problem was, right? Then I then I became a chief auditor of a company with a major chemical division. <laughs> so it's like, okay, right? I mean, I understand the periodic table of elements and kind of you know chemical reactions in in a in a general sense, but. If, if we're going to audit or if I'm going to understand that part of the business, I need to learn more, right? Yeah. I, didn't, I didn't have to go back to school and get a PhD in, you know, chemistry. But mm -hmm. I did sit down for a day or two with one of the heads of, our, of one of our chemical plants who did have a PhD in chemistry. Mm -hmm. and, and he went through and explained the process and the different chemical reactions that were happening at these different points so that we, you know, an input would come in, chemical reaction would happen, these different byproducts would go off, how we would then take those and use and do the other stuff. Because until I understood that, I couldn't actually really audit it. You have to yeah. understand the business side of it yeah. before we can actually audit. And so that's why I've always viewed audit like a, like a big funnel, right? Mm -hmm. And so everything in the top that goes down, I mean, you're just learning and understanding and planning should be 60 or 70% of your audit. I mean, the, the, the detailed test work is very little of what you're actually doing um, at the end of the day. And if we, if we skip those steps, then we're really not going to understand or be able to provide the value that we should to the organizations. That's well said. I agree 100%. Audit to me is a learning experience where we as auditors our skill is to take information, assimilate it, and provide a perspective to management that they may not have had themselves. Mm -hmm. And that's what we should be doing. And to do that, you really have to listen well to what people tell, tell you. I, I try to instruct my staff to always listen, not to be critical, but to understand. The critical piece comes at the end of the audit when you're looking at everything that you've seen and you get all the results. But you have to be able to understand. And that means asking questions to understand, not to criticize. It's not mm -hmm. to find fault. It's to really understand what management is doing, why they are doing it, and what the risks are from their perspectives. Because these people manage the business day in and day out. Now, they all aren't really perfect and wonderful all the time. But they do a pretty damn good job, generally speaking. So we can learn a lot. And unfortunately, auditors don't take the time to do that because they'll go in and the questions are, well, why don't you do this? Instead of, can you explain to me how why? do you deal with this? Yeah. And it's just, it's those kind of things that no one really helps auditors understand that the language you use and how you inquire about something has a big, big impact on the information you receive back that helps educate you to be a better auditor. Mm -hmm. And so the tradition is go in and ask, why did you do it that way? Versus could you explain to me alternative things that you considered before you chose this avenue? Yeah. And it's just, it's amazing. And people just for some reason can't capture that. I don't understand. 
Well, and that reminds me, I'll have to kind of paraphrase, you know, from the book, because one, one of the things that you said in here too, that I, that I totally agree with is it's not the auditor's job to tell the manager how to run the business. Yeah. But, but I think sometimes we tend to do that, right? Like, like you said, and, and whether it's direct or indirect, uh, it can be perceived that way by the managers, because when you go in and you say, well, why did you do it that way? And why weren't you following this best practice? And our recommendation says you must follow this best practice. So I'm going to write you up and tell you, you need to follow this best practice. And it's like, okay. I mean, the, the, the problem is if that's what we're telling and we have told auditors that because you see this all the time uh-huh. and that's a big timeout for me because it's like, imagine if you're sitting on the other side of the desk and somebody comes in and tells you that, I know a whole bunch of explicatives that would be going through my head and might be coming yeah. out my mouth to that person, uh, you know, because it's like, first off, who are you to come in here and tell me that, right? Again, yeah. I've got the gray hair. You're a 20-something brand new auditor trying to tell me to follow this best practice. Mm-hmm. Who the hell decided that was a best practice anyway, right? Well, it's in my little book over here, right? It's like, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> hey, that doesn't matter, right? That's not, that's, that doesn't matter. And, and so we have, to, we have to shift that perspective because I think it's something else that you brought up in the book that I thought, that I thought was really good is about insight versus foresight. Mm-hmm. And, and I think this kind of gets back into what, you, what you're talking about here is instead of being seen as the policemen that come in and, you know, or that, that old quote about bayoneting the wounded, you know, after the war yeah. kind of thing, right, is, is to actually be seen more as a coach. You know, we talk about assurance and consulting, but yes. I almost think that, you know, auditors, we should be coaching more. And trying to, because that's kind of what a coach does, is it helps people, it, it provides some insight because they're outside of the day-to-day. And so mm-hmm. they can often see things and just ask questions like, well, I'm just curious, why, why, are, you, why are you doing it this way? You know, or how, yeah. is, how is that actually, you know, working kind of a thing? And, and realize that, you know, ultimately we're here to help the company achieve yep. its objectives. We're not here to issue a hundred audit reports this last year and show that our number of recommendations went up because most of the time that's just BS, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, and I did work for somebody one time that said, you will have seven recommendations on this audit. Really? Yeah. And I'm like, really? They're like, oh yeah, you've got to come up with at least seven recommendations. And I'm thinking, what if they're doing it perfect? Right? So then I'm just making up some bullshit to put in my report to say that I added value because I, I provided a bunch of recommendations. And again, put yourself in the other seat. People aren't going to be very happy when you're doing that. That's true. You know, and so, yeah. so this relationship and the tension that we often have between the management that we're auditing, we're doing it to ourselves. Because, because of the language that we're using and some of these other things, right? Um, so yeah, okay. So we'll, <laughs> we just get going here. Woo! Um, but but maybe let's let's talk a little bit um, here to to kind of wrap up um, about insight versus foresight. Ask you a question about that, and then okay. maybe just kind of talk about because I know you said you're you're in the in the works of a new book that's more about soft skills. And yeah. just kind of wanted to talk a little bit about that because for me, I see that as one of the biggest gaps in internal audit right now is people have to get the soft skills um, because they're even more important now. A lot of the technical stuff, the computer is doing the testing for you. Yeah. So without the soft skills, people are going to be out of a job. So, okay. so insight versus foresight. What's kind of the difference between there? Because I know the IIA says one of the things that we do is provide insight, which I agree with. So what's insight versus what's foresight? To me, you know, it's an interesting question. And it it came to me quite a few years ago uh, from somebody who was just sitting down to me and saying that, what is the value that you give to your job? And they said, you should be able to provide insight. And, I, and this was like seven years ago. And I said, okay, I, I get what insight is. 
Insight is the ability to look at things and give a opinion based on the facts coupled with experience. So you, that's perspective. You know, when we did it this way, this is what happened. This is why it happened. You always provide the why. Foresight is providing the why something is going to happen. And that's a little harder to do because people say you can't predict things. I would say you probably can predict things. If you understand people, you understand processes, and you know what is going to occur when people match processes. It's like the chemical reactions you were talking about. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, things happen when people and processes mix. The more experience you have, and you can layer in controls and risk to the conversation, you can then provide foresight. And foresight is, well, if you continue to go down this pathway, these are the three alternatives you will probably face. I'll give you a good example. Uh, and this is an example that's in the book, and it's really, to me, it's a, it's a great example. We were looking at uh, a business that was a retirement business, a pension fund business. And Citibank had bought the company in, in Colombia, and Citibank had an uh, offering of a product of a time deposit for people that was paying a very nice return of a mm -hmm. fixed rate, low risk time deposit with maybe a three or 4% interest rate return. In Colombia at that time, the best that business could do was about a 1.5 or 2% return. So they decided to take the pension funds of their company, of their pensioners in Colombia and invest them in this time deposit in Citibank in New York. Mm -hmm. When we went down and audited, I talked to Jaime Umberto, who was the president, and I asked him why he did that. And he said, well, we looked at this. It's better for the customer. He's right. It was better for the customer. They get better return. It's more secure. It's offshore. It's in the United States. It's in dollars. All those reasons, very good. He even had legal opinion from mm -hmm. the attorney saying that it was a good thing to do. I said, you know, that's all wonderful. Did you bother to talk to your regulators? Because you have a law in Colombia that said you can't do that. And he said, well, our <laughs> attorneys said we could do that. I said, well, did any, let me rephrase the question. Did you ask the regulators if it was okay to do that? Because they're the ones who made the law. And he said, no. I said, well, just so you know, I have to write this up. I'm going to write it in the issue, in the report. It's going to be a mellow issue, not a big one, because for the customer impact, it's very positive mm -hmm. uh, and all that. So there was balance there but I do have to write it up. And what I need from you is when the regulators fine you for doing this, you need to call me and tell me how much the fine was. And he says, fine, you gotta do what you gotta do, we do it. And he, six months later, nine months later, I get a phone call from Jaime Humberto and he tells me $2 million. I said, okay, got it. So being able to communicate with people things that are going to happen provides the opportunity to provide foresight. You know something is going to happen, you might as well share it. It doesn't always have to be an audit issue. It doesn't have to be the worst audit issue. And it doesn't have to impact what you're doing. And, and this was an interesting example because there was so much positive and it was done for the right reasons. It was just against the law. Yep. And a little bit of retrospective, but also future happening. You're going to get it. Reserve, for the, reserve the money for it and be prepared to pay it out. And yep. so uh, that's, that's kind of a, a little bit of the difference between foresight and insight. Foresight is the ability to tell people what will probably occur when they do certain actions based on the processes that you understand and you know. And so it's a big, it's a big deal because it takes a lot of depth of understanding to be able to provide foresight. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think, I think that example that you just shared is great, you know, kind of as, as one to, um, to kind of tie together some of these things we've been talking about too, is, you know, in the, in that instance that, you know, you, you were asking the right type of questions to him, right. Yeah. On, on why they did it from a business perspective, it made total sense, you know, to do that for, for the customer's benefit. Um, but the problem was, like you said, it was technically against the law in Colombia. Okay. So, um, you could have made a big deal about that. You could have gone down the, you know, like the gorilla pounding its chest and say, ha 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 ha. Right. I just caught these guys doing this. Now, if you would have done that, um, you know, you would have started to make a, <laughs> a frenemy 
in, in, uh -huh. yeah. in that part, right? Because boy, next time that you were coming down there, you know, they, they, they would not want you around. Okay. Yeah, that's true. Um, so, so the, 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 the approach that you took towards that of saying, you know, you, you validated and said, Oh, I totally understand why you did this. That makes sense. But did you consider this? No. Okay. Well, let's find out what it is because I think, um, you know, in the book, when he, when he came back to the, the, the quote that I loved the most too was, I, I think I should listen to you more, <laughs> you know, or something like that, you know, that, yeah. that because of the way you handled yourself and you handled the situation, you made a friend in him, yeah. right? And, and, yeah. and it elevated the value of audit. Now, was it the right business decision? I mean, we don't know the total number or you don't, but everybody else doesn't. Was, was a $2 million fine worth it? Probably if you've got a big asset base. Okay. It, it was still, we could have done things better, but you know, you, you didn't have to drag him through the mud, you know, or any, mm -hmm. anything like that. But, but it, it shows that when you provide that insight or foresight to people in the organization, that's when the value starts to come in. Be, because I, I talk to lots of people and, and they're like, you know, they just don't value what I'm doing or I'm trying to add more value. But most of the time, they're not actually thinking about what actually adds value to the manager. Mm -hmm. They're thinking yep. about how they think they're providing value, but it may or may not be what they actually want. And so, you know, this insight and actually working with coaching you know, seeing instead of trying to be so independent and nobody can tell me what to do and I do everything the way that I want to do it, kind of a mentality that a lot of auditors tend to do, you're better off to be a part of the team and, and helping to improve it. It doesn't, you don't, you don't throw your objectivity out by doing that, no. right? Because you, you still have to, you still have to be, uh, you know, use the evidence and make the proper conclusions that you need to but there's different ways that you can deliver the message. And one, you look like a jerk. And the mm -hmm. other one, people love you and they can't wait to work with you again. And, and I, I think it's interesting because as we started off, you know, talking about tradition. Yep. And, and this is kind of wrapping us up here with the soft skills. Uh, there's a reason why I've been studying psychology for over 20 years. Because everything we do... <laughs> has something to do with psychology because we're dealing with people. Yes. Right. And, yep. and so, you know, these soft skills and other things, it, it's, it's no longer that auditors can get by with just being technically competent. If you're technically competent, but nobody likes you, you're going to get fired. Yep. Absolutely. I mean, that's, that's just the, the, the result, right? So, um, so I love that you're writing a new book. I think you're going to, you're calling it the Teo of audit right? The, the towel of audit. Okay. That, um, you know, we do need to have, you know, the soft side of things in here too. Um, and so I'll have to have you back on. <laughs> We're kind of running out of time for today. Um, but soft skills are a huge, huge deal um, in the future. And like I said, that if, if um, we, we have to develop them, we have to learn how to work better with people with yep. organizations and treat it much more like your example, you know, that you shared with the man from Columbia. Um, that's the kind of stuff, but without some of that emotional intelligence and ability to actually, you know, work with him as another human being, that yeah. thing could have blown, could have blown up. So, yeah, you know, in my last comment would be that we're str we struggle in the audit industry to become trusted advisors to the, the clients that we serve. And the problem is we can't be trusted and we aren't good at advice, advising people. And that's the tradition that gives it to us. The tradition in the business is that you don't trust your auditors. They're going to criticize everything you do. And auditors can't advise because they always criticize everything that you do. We need to do something besides that to break that paradigm. And that's what the Tao of Audit comes in place is to help us be able to be trusted and to learn how to provide advice. Mm -hmm. To your point where we are part of a team, every team has people or things in it that have a specific role to play, to play. We have a specific role in an organization to play. We can be better at that in a lot of different ways. I think the soft skills, being able to be trusted, 
being able to provide advice instead of criticism all the time will really help us manifest our own calling and our contribution to the team. And then we won't be on that island. We will actually be part of the team, an independent assessor of what that team does and a motivator and a catalyst to help them do what's right from a control perspective when needed. Yep. Yep. Well, I think we got to kind of wrap wrap up for today, but yeah, we're gonna, <laughs> we're gonna have to talk again, Dan, because I, okay. I think I think it's you know as as we talked about too that I'm I'm hoping that um, as people are listening to this, they're understanding we're trying to help provide foresight for yeah. internal audit as a profession as well, because the times are changing, they're coming, right? And uh, you know, Dylan pops in my head whenever I think about change. Yeah. You know, and, and there's a line in there, if, you know, get out of the way if you can't lend a hand. And, you know, that, that things are changing. And so let's, let's be a part of the change mm-hmm. in, instead of in, ending up kind of off the island, <laughs> literally yeah. kicked off the island and out of a job and having the profession end up going down. So, because internal auditing is a great profession. Uh, it's been a great, great career for me. I think it has been for you as well. Uh, and for many other people. So Dan Clark, thank you for uh, being with me today. And for everybody that's out there, pick up the Dare to Be Different book. Uh, It's great. And we'll we'll be looking for the new one that's coming out uh, shortly as well. All right, everybody. Thank you very much. And remind everybody, they got to listen to us because I am the goat. You're you're the goat and I'm the rock star. So the ghost, they gotta listen to us. <laughs> well, and, and, and so here's the funny thing too, right? The 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 rock sign is yeah. a goat. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I got it. I got yeah, it. Johnny, <laughs> Ronnie James Dio. All right. Anyway, <laughs> all right, everybody. With that, have a great rest of your day, and uh, thanks again, Dan. Uh-huh, thank you. And that's a wrap. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Jamming with Jason. Keep on rocking in the audit world. Have a great rest of your day, and I'll catch you later on the next show. If you'd like to earn continuing professional education for listening to today's episode, head on over to C-Risk Academy at ondemand.criskacademy.com. And that's C as in the letter C, riskacademy.com. Not only do you get a CPE certificate, but you also will have access to the video version of today's show. The views and opinions expressed on this show are that of the individuals and not of their respective organizations.